Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Jess Sibley is an Atlanta occupational therapist working with neurodiverse individuals who don't have reliable speech. Some have autism or sensory processing disorder. Her clinic, Minds in Motion, has recently developed a learning series that uses art as a form of communication. Later this hour, City Light senior producer Kim Drobe speaks with Sibley and special effects artist Shane Morton about teaching special needs students stop-motion animation. First... There are many mystery stories and thrillers about stolen works of fine art, and the theme is popular in movies as well. Now, the unsolved disappearance of fine art has inspired an artist's original creations. Kota Isawa's works are in a new exhibition, The Crime of Art, on view at the Georgia Museum of Art in Athens. Kota Hizawa joins us now via Zoom with the museum's curator of European art, Nelda Damiano. Welcome to City Lights. Hi, thanks Thank for you. having us. It's a pleasure to be here. Kota, for those unfamiliar with the infamous heist in 1990, at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston. Would you explain what took place? Okay, well, I'm not an art historian or a journalist. I see it through my own eyes, my artist's eyes, but the best known fact is maybe that it was the biggest art heist in American history in terms of value of work that was stolen. It was a nighttime operation where two thieves dressed as policemen uh, came to the back entrance of the museum and then subdued the guards and went away with some of the most prized and famous artworks of the collection, among them a Rembrandt seascape and uh, works by Edgar Degas and Edouard Manet and 13 works in total. Nelda, what was your take on that heist? Oh, well, I'm still hopeful that uh, they will find the works one day. <laughs> yeah. so, and that uh, they will be again for everyone to enjoy. But I know there's been, of course, renewed interest because it has been 30 years. But also for those who are familiar with the Netflix series, this is a robbery. And I think it's kind of brought back the heist into the news. And of course, the ongoing reward, which is now up at 10 million. And so there's always this excitement or this, as you mentioned, mystery and fascination with this type of robbery. But hopefully he'll be he'll be solved one day. I hope you're right. It's eerie to visit the museum because they have just empty frames on the wall. 
where those pictures would hang, those that were stolen. It almost, it, it has the feeling of a cemetery and a tombstone there. Correct, yes. And in the context of this exhibition, we, uh, we have some additional resources on our website, on the Georgia Museum of Art website. And one of the resources is a link to the actual virtual tour of the uh, Gardner Museum where you see those famous rooms where the, the works used to hang. Kota, when did you decide to recreate, or rather to reinterpret the paintings that were stolen? Yeah, there was a, a really clear moment where this idea sprang on me. It was the um, uh, summer of 2015. And I found this uh, website by the FBI, which is like a visual database of stolen artworks from U.S. collections and museums. And I came on the, the one stolen from the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. And I started to recreate one of the Rembrandt paintings in the way that I have recreated photographs and other artifacts from history in the past. And just while I was making these drawings, a news story came up in the New York Times that a videotape had surfaced that might lead to the whereabouts of the paintings. And new, I learned since then that news stories like that spring up every couple of years. But I thought, wow, this is a really crazy coincidence. And I decided to recreate the entire lot of works that were removed from the museum, along with the videotape, which was a security videotape of activity, suspicious activity in the museum the night before the theft. Yes. Now, you didn't set out to replicate the 13 works that were stolen. They are mixed media pieces with digital animation and paper cutouts. Would you explain how you created these works? Uh, yeah, it's a very idiosyncratic process that might be hard to completely explain in a sentence or two, but it's a practice that I've developed over the past 15 years where I have recreated in my own style films, videos, photographs, and in this case, paintings. And what I'm creating is not, as you mentioned, a precise replica of the original, but more like a ghost image, and also kind of an abstraction of the original. And um, so it becomes kind of, in my mind, like a stand-in for the original rather than a, you know, exact copy. And this is not the first time that you have drawn from news or popular culture. Are events an ongoing source of inspiration for your art? Yeah, I mean, yeah, it has come that way. And, and the once I started this project, it just ballooned on me and I'm never running out of material that I can uh, work into my process. I feel a little bit like the um, visual equivalent of a hip-hop DJ. I grew up in the 80s and 90s, in the early days of hip-hop music, when DJs were using old records by old musicians to create new beats and new sounds. And that's kind of how I also see my work in a more visual way, that I, you know, use paintings by Rembrandt or photographs from family albums and create a kind of new visual language out of these older images. Oh, I think that's fantastic. I love the comparison to a hip-hop DJ as well, because a DJ is a curator of sorts. Exactly. And yeah, and I think it's great to also have a real art historian on the chat here. I, I feel kind of like an amateur historian. You know, I didn't study history or art history. I studied art in art school, but I feel the practices of artists and art historian or curator are becoming more and more kind of intertwined. I feel that, you know, museum curators are 
DJ, visual DJs of sorts too. Oh, Nelda, how do you feel about that? Do you have your microphone all ready? Uh, <laughs> that was a huge compliment because it makes us sound really cool. And I don't know that I, I am as cool as Buddha <laughs> kind of makes it out to be or curators are, but definitely it's been for me as a curator of European art and old masters, I was interested and fascinated with Kota's approach and how he was reacting to these uh, masterpieces. And, and really, this is what I've been enjoying, this kind of dialogue and a new perspective or his vision, or as he just mentioned, how a kind of a, a ghost image of the original. And so I think this is an opportunity for us with this exhibition to showcase Kota's work, but also inform visitors about these original works and what they meant, what they have meant to the history of art. And of course, when you have household names like Rembrandt and Manet and Vermeer, I mean, it's a treat. And uh, so in the exhibition, we tried to provide a little bit of information on those works as well. Sure. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes, speaking with artist Kurt Aizawa and the Georgia Museum of Art curator Nelda Damiano about Aizawa's new exhibition, The Crime of Art. Kota, you mentioned the security footage accompanying the light boxes featured in this exhibition. There are video works, including that black and white reproduction of the security footage at the Gardner Museum, the night of the heist. Why was that important for you to include in the show? The resulting image of this video is an animation. It's not an archival recording. It's a drawn video. I see. And animation has been kind of my bread and butter. I had the luck to study in one of the first video art programs in art school that existed in the early 90s in Düsseldorf. And there I kind of developed this video practice. And it, video is pretty much part of every exhibition that I do. It's kind of the backbone of all I do. And so this, video, this exhibition features, on the one hand, the recreation of the security videotapes. They're very subtle. And there's not very much that you can kind of make out from it. There's one point where a person enters the museum at an odd hour, but you can't really make out who it is and nothing has happened as a consequence. And then the other video animation that's part of the exhibition is a compilation of art heists uh, from Hollywood films, mostly recreated as animations. But yeah, uh, animation is, uh, video is kind of like, like I said, the starting point of everything I do. And at what point in the exhibition do visitors encounter the security film? The exhibition is actually laid out and designed in two separate galleries. And one of the galleries has the 13 light boxes of the 13 stolen works of art. And then in the other gallery, we have both videos. And so uh, the video, which is the compilation of the films is set up. So we also have benches and you can sit down and, and enjoy. It's sort of a, maybe correct me if I'm wrong, Kota, but it's about two minutes and a half, I would say on a loop. And uh, the only thing we have missing is the popcorn. You can't have that in the gallery, but it's just a very intriguing and engaging. And then the video with the security footage is on a separate screen in another area of that second gallery. So they are two distinct areas where visitors can enjoy those. You have some wonderful events surrounding the exhibition. Please tell us about the family day to go kits. Yeah, so we're very excited. This uh, Kota's exhibition lends itself 
to just fantastic programming for different audiences and for our community. So we're very thrilled to have Kota come and give a, a presentation on September 7th at the museum. We have a family day to go September 9th. It's a regular day where families can pick up free art kits and activity guide uh, at the museum and they can take that with them to do at home. We have the film series. So the, the films, some of the films that we see in the compilation that Kota talked about will be presented at the museum. So we have uh, Stolen, How to Steal a Million. I love that. Yes. We have our Toddler Tuesday on September 21st. We have a Teen Studio on September 23rd. And we have a talk by Anthony Amore, who's the director of security at the Gardner Museum on October 14th. And I just want to stress that admission is free and all of these activities are free. Great. I was wondering, Coda, have you received any response or reaction to your series from anyone at the Gardner? I personally haven't. Uh, so the exhibition has been shown in numerous places since 2015. It was first shown as a gallery exhibition in New York. And then as uh, this is kind of the fifth or sixth installation at a, a museum. And I know there were conversations between gallerists and curators at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. I personally wasn't privy to it. But the, you know, the reactions in general uh, I have received, yes, including, you know, the invitation to come uh, visit this program and to uh, come to Athens. That's great. The thieves who stole these works are still at large. The paintings have never been found 31 years later. How do your works, Kota, how do these creations give added meaning to the loss of the originals? I'm, uh, you know, that would be an honor if they did. But I think of these works as some kind of an effort to talk about memory in, in general. I mean, you mentioned at the introduction that the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum still features the empty frames. And... They're very powerful. Um, we look at these empty spaces just as intently as we look at a frame that has a painting inside, maybe even more intently. And I think that's kind of what I'm pointing at with this work, that memory is such a powerful thing. Artist Kota Isawa and the Georgia Museum of Art curator Nelda Damiano. Isawa's new exhibition, The Crime of Art, is on view at the Georgia Museum in Athens through December 5th. Up next, we'll hear what happens when art is used as a way to communicate with neurodiverse individuals. You're listening to WABE Atlanta. Jess Sibley knows a thing or two about communication. As an occupational therapist, she works with neurodiverse individuals who often don't have reliable speech. Her clinic, Minds in Motion, has recently developed a learning series that uses art as a form of communication. Sibley's students who share diagnoses such as autism and sensory processing disorder, have met with various Atlanta artists this summer, including Shane Morton of Silver Scream FX Lab. Morton has worked in the film and TV industry for 35 years, and he and Sibley collaborated to teach her students stop-motion animation. City Light senior producer Kim Drobes recently spoke with Sibley and Morton over Zoom, and Sibley began explaining how letterboards help her work with neurodiverse individuals. 
I'm an occupational therapist and I have two colleagues I work with. One's a speech and language pathologist and the other one is a letterboard specialist or communication specialist. And we came together and just decided that we all have a passion for art and movement and creating, and we work with a very large neurodiverse population. You mentioned a letter board. For the unfamiliar, can you explain what that is? Sure. It's just a board. It has A to Z on it, and the students work to practice the motor skills to point to letters to spell. So a lot of our individuals are bombarded with sensory differences and might be easily distracted or overwhelmed and they have impulse control issues. For instance, they might be inclined to say the same word over and over. So before they really are fluent on our letter boards, we work with them so that they can communicate reliably, and that becomes a means of communication for them. Well, Shane, how did you meet Jessica, and what inspired you to get involved with the project? Well, I was brought into this through Jared Faust, and Jared and I have been working on movies and television shows for years. He's a really gifted uh, special effects artist who specializes in what's called tokusatsu effects, which is the Japanese term for special effects and miniaturization and suitmation and and all that stuff. We're both kind of obsessed with Japanese culture and stuff that pertains to like the way they do special effects. They have a different sort of technique for it. It's just really precise and really, really fantastic. When they had talked about, you know, teaching stop motion to these students, I was super excited because King Kong is the reason that I do everything that I do. I saw King Kong when I was like three years old and it changed my whole (laughs) life. And from then on, I've been an artist and I've been working with special effects in films for 35 years now. And it's, it's been great. And it all started with King Kong and stop motion. <laughs> I used to make little stop motion movies with Super 8 cameras with my dad when I was a kid. And so it was great to bring that in. Just seeing King Kong on the screen at the school and everybody you know, watching clips from King Kong and Wallace and Gromit. We watched a lot of Wallace and Gromit. Another great example. Yeah, Wallace and Gromit stuff is great for stop motion. So yeah, it was, just, it was just the kind of thing that just made me totally excited to be there all day. Let's get a little more into the specifics of how your particular class ended up breaking down and then how it ended up looking. We kind of made the premise of our week about illusion and how illusion is perceived by our brain and how it's created visually, um, whether it's looking at an image and seeing multiple different images, depending on how you look on it or colors. And so we kind of wanted to bring in a couple different effects. So we talked about visual poetry, how poets can put words in a certain form and make an illusion of an image. And that can kind of grow what you're reading and make you think about it differently. And we had our students make visual poetry with stamps and we drew out a key. And so they would stamp letters of the words that they pick. So they would say the key to inclusion is diversity. And so they would stamp diversity into their image. It was really cool. And then also stop motion. So looking at how to create movement using images and pictures. And we used their bodies to create letters, which was, it was, that was such a fun task. Cause again, my students don't move very fluidly. So they need a lot of support. And then it's difficult for them to hold a position for a long time. So it was really cool to get them laying down on the ground next to each other, working with one another to create the image of the letter in, for for example. And then um, finally, we wanted to bring it all together using film and all the cool stuff Jared and Shane know how to do. And so we had them work together to create this. Shane, you might do a better example of how to explain it. Yeah. Well, that day that you were talking about the visual poetry, I learned a lot that day. I didn't realize that that form went so far back. That piece of poetry that was in the shape of a bird that was meant to be printed sideways, which must have been really hard to do back in those old printing press days. There was an example where the poetry would be lined up in a certain way. So on paper, it would literally make a shape of a bird. And it was a poem about the soul, um, you know, ascending and, and intellect getting to a higher level. 
And if you looked at it sideways, it was in the shape of a bird. This is like hundreds of years ago. So That's it beautiful. was, uh, yeah, it was really, it was really neat. And the way that Jess set that up, it, it really set the stage for how we were going to stop motion animate these letters to create wordplay, right? So there could be moving wordplay. It was really surprising too how detailed some of the movements they came up with. So imagine if you would, the, the listener, imagine if you will, there's a screen and then there's a lot of magnetic and magnetic alphabets and each piece moves a little bit. The A say moves a little bit, take a picture, moves a little bit more, take a picture, moves a little bit more. And then when you sync, sync these images together, it creates movement just sort of like, you know, when they animate King Kong, they move the model just a fraction of a centimeter and take a picture fraction of a centimeter. It's a very time consuming process, but, I was surprised one of them was autonomy and the way that he had animated this piece where at the end, the O and the N in autonomy were both switched out by red letters. So it turned the word on. There were little magic Aww. moments like that that were happening in this project. And to me, that sort of thinking would come from somebody that had been doing this for a while, not somebody who had just learned it the process three days ago. That's so fascinating. So you really saw connection and light bulbs going off in students' heads. Oh, boy, did we ever. And when they would, you know, because most of them are nonverbal, but when they would get the board and read out these messages, these messages, and I'll read some of them out later, they were so eloquent that these thank you notes at the end of the thing slayed us. Jared and I had to like keep it together so we didn't cry in front of everybody because it was <laughs> right. so eloquent what these guys were saying. And, and to somebody that hadn't been working there, they might think that this one kid might not have been paying attention to us because he might not have been looking at us while we were talking about what process we were going through. But then when you realize he's listened to every single bit of minutia and they really get it so these guys they they get marginalized and people don't maybe pay attention because they don't know what's going on inside their head there's a mm -hmm. lot yeah it's not that the students don't know what's going on outside in the world it's just that we can't really see what's going on inside their heads. Like exactly, you said. Yeah. Yep. That's so interesting. And so Jess, you know, you've made a career out of teaching students like this. Was that a long learned process, you know, just to be able to take that leap of faith that you are being understood? Yeah. You know, starting off in my career, um, I think I was very heavily focused on sensory systems and making sure like the lights weren't too bright or noise wasn't too loud and now as I've gotten along in my career, I recognize those things are important and they help keep our students regulated and calm. But the real key here is helping them participate and engage in the world. And the world is going to have those components no matter where you go. We can't mm -hmm. always guarantee that someone's going to understand or be able to dim the lights or use choir voices or whatnot. So I really work with my students on helping them find coping strategies, whether they wear headphones or one of our students will frequently turn out the lights and we allow her to do that. And, and unless we need the lights, we leave them off. But more importantly, we really coach them on how to use their body more meaningfully and purposefully. Because a lot of our students do look like they're checked out and or they're not engaging in the way that we would hope they would, but with a little bit of just a tiny bit of effort and prompt just to kind of say, hey, come over here, look at this, you know, use your eyes to take this in, they can do that. Right. Uh, and, and by teaching them and sharing them, I mean, you would have thought at times there was so quiet in that room. And these are kids who can be very loud at times, but when you're really feeding their brain and teaching them something new and interesting, they're dead silent and captivated. They might not be looking at the screen, but they're listening to everything that's being said. Oh, that's so great. And to be able to combine that with an artistic venture like this and like some of the other projects that you're doing is just lovely. And I like that you, Shane, got a chance to describe the stop motion wordplay. There's another element to what you guys created together, right? Yeah, it kind of started with 
the stop motion and the shape of words. But then what they did was they took these words and applied them to these like cardboard buildings that we made. And we painted like a backdrop with clouds and we built them an environment so they could become like all powerful kaiju and smash these buildings that were (laughs) metaphors for the barriers they have to deal with in life. It's kind of heady stuff, actually, you know, so it was great to see that, sure, it's fun to run in there and smash a cardboard city or whatever, but that's not what they were doing. Like, let me just read this letter that one of the students, I'm not going to name any names, but he wrote this after the shoot. And this gives you an idea of how eloquent they were. So he said, thank you so much, Jared and Shane, for making this experience so much fun and memorable. The force of your creative spirit is unbelievable. These forms used to create an experience of busting through our barriers were impactful. Wow. And this is from, a, you know, he never said a word to us. In fact, he never vocalized. Yeah, and I love his key word is OCD. Um, One of his barriers was OCD, and he really struggles with kind of these obsessive compulsive picking and things. And he had such a good time and was so regulated and clearly motivated to be part of this experience. It was really cool to see. Yeah, his building was the OCD building. Can you give me an idea of some of the other words that were on the buildings that the students were knocking over? Yeah, absolutely. Some of them were belief. They were saying that they struggle because not everyone believes in them. Perception was a big thread that went through the project. Yeah, here's the list. They said a barrier to autonomy would be perceptions, impulses, and OCD. And barriers to inclusion were acceptance, belief, people, and then cancellation. So like the idea that they could just be canceled just based on how they appear you know, or act. Yeah, Yeah, that their ideas don't matter. People just aren't used to interaction with them. Special effects artist Shane Morton and occupational therapist Jess Sibley speaking with City Light senior producer Kim Drobes. We'll be back with more of their conversation in just a moment. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Brightsis. Thank you for listening. Let's get back to our conversation with special effects artist Shane Morton and occupational therapist Jess Sibley. They've been speaking with City Lights senior producer Kim Drobes about using art to communicate with neurodiverse individuals. Here, Morton talks about his previous experience working with neurodiverse creatives and his involvement with the film Sam and Maddie Make a Zombie Movie. I had worked before on a very special project with some guys that had Down syndrome, and they wrote this movie, and we made this movie with them called Sam and Maddie Make a Zombie Movie. Yeah, you did. I'm so glad you're bringing that up. Well, that was one of the things that when Jess had pitched this to Jared, he was like, well, Shane's kind of into this stuff. He made this movie with these guys. You know, we were up in Providence for, you know, over a month shooting this thing, but... um It taught me a lot because I just knew right off the bat that this was the greatest script I'd ever read, just how nutty it was and how well it was written. Like there were footnotes on every page, every character's 
there was there were so many notes so many specific notes that i knew i was going to have no trouble at all getting what i wanted out getting what i needed from the directors so i could give them what they wanted do you understand what i'm saying because mm -hmm. sometimes people don't know how to explain what it is they want they say okay i need this monster for this movie he comes out of this closet or whatever but well what does the monster look like these guys knew every bit of color they knew what the motorcycle was going to look like that they needed. They knew like all the minutia was absolutely covered. So it was one of the most exhilarating first production meetings I've ever had. And these guys mm -hmm. had never made a movie before, but because they were so specific and they've been working on the script for over a year, they just knew exactly what they wanted. And somehow we were able to get it to them. There was even a giant fight scene with, zombies crawling out of the ocean over a yacht where all these kids are having a spring break party and i was reading a script i was just like how are we going to get this and somehow we got everything it was just one of those projects that you know people work on movies and they go oh that was the greatest experience of my life but this was like literally one of the greatest experiences of my life you know peter farrelly came in and executive produced it oh wow yeah so he, and he was on set you know for at least half the time he's worked with down syndrome actors before and stuff so it was just it was really eye-opening and the creators it feels like a silly question but i should make sure were they sam and maddie yeah yes the number one rule for all of the department heads you could not influence them you couldn't say, oh, well, this dress might be better if it was pink instead of red because of the way they were. No, you couldn't. You had to just give them their vision. That's just fantastic. Yes, it was. Is that available to see or is it still in a post-production phase? No, it's out. It's on. You can watch it on iTunes. There's a bunch of platforms that it's out. Conan O'Brien had them on the show. Like It, it had a lot of uh, attention for a while there. So. That's wonderful. I feel like when I do these things, I get as much out of it as the students do. No so doubt. It, it's good for me too. No doubt. Well, you mentioned that part of the rule on set was that you weren't allowed to influence Sam and Maddie. And I could imagine just the idea that perception is so important here and that someone might be on set and immediately assume that Sam and Maddie need help with a decision or maybe don't realize that, oh, they should really be going in this direction. Is perception something that the general public could be educated more, that we could all be better citizens together about it? Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I can't, I mean, yeah. We, this country especially needs a lot of work on this right now. I mean, I think we can all agree on that, that it's it's time to not take people just at face value and actually take the time to maybe have a proper discourse about something before you jump to a conclusion about what what this what this person is capable of or what they are, um, you know, what they're how they think things should be or whatever. You know, does that make any sense? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I think yeah. also, I mean, I think what's so unique about my clientele is that they can do and say things that just come off a little like unique or different. And mm -hmm. sometimes people just don't know how to react to that. And I think uh, one thing that I love about being out in the community or meeting people like Shane and Jared is that we are so comfortable with our students as they are that we can really model like, okay, when this kid asks you for the third time who your ex-girlfriend is, like <laughs> you don't probably have to answer that every time because we've kind of modeled how to help that. So I think it's a really collaborative effort of both our students showing up and being themselves and then having the support so that we can help other people know what do you do in this situation what happens if someone does scream all of a sudden and how should we respond to that? Um, but also what is it like when you say hello to someone who can't say hello back to you? You know, like mm -hmm. people get uncomfortable with that. And I think um, I know myself, like I, you know, I'm pretty comfortable with it. I can have full on dialogues with them and 
you know, I try to think of ways to make sure that I'm including their thought process, even if I can't include their actual thoughts out loud. And so I think that we could all learn and practice that. If I was to run into you and your group out in the community, what would be one piece of advice you could give me on how I could handle it better than maybe my instincts would allow? Um, You know, I think I would say, speak to them directly. If they don't respond, just use a kind follow-up. So, I mean, sometimes I'll just be like, hey, Shane, how are you? And if they don't say anything, then I might just be like, it's so good to see you today, or I'm so glad we got to meet. And just being okay with that comfort, or I just saw something this weekend that made me think of blah, 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 like just sharing information with them. One thing they can do is definitely hear and understand everything. So I... I always am looking for things that I can teach or tell them and just acknowledging that um, I see and I respect them. So I think a lot of people tend to like look at me and talk to me and I always redirect back to the student. I don't know, Lily, I'm curious what your thoughts are about that. We'll have to check in on that later, you know, so then I can kind of help model like this child is right here and here's you. And even if they can't answer, I'll follow up with them later and see if I can find out, you know. That's awesome. But well, like what Jess was saying, you do have to be careful because they are paying attention to everything and they're taking notes and their memory is better than yours right Mm -hmm. so there was a weird thing that happened when i was like jess was saying there was one of the students like she must have this thing where she's interested in relationships that don't work out somehow (laughs) she brought up my ex-girlfriend and why she wasn't my fiance anymore and i was like wait that was like 12 years ago like wait how do you know that and um (gasps) It kind of spooked me at first because I was like, well, did she like reach out into the ether and grab this? Does she have supernatural powers? <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was just, it was neat though. And uh, I was like, well, you know, she's doing great. You know, we're still friends. We're just, you know. And then uh, a couple of days later, I saw her do the same thing to Jess and go, oh, how's so-and-so? And she said, oh, I haven't seen him in 10 years. And I was like, oh, okay. So this must be a thing. But each one of them have their thing. And, it, you know, Jess had the um, luxury of kind of knowing what to expect. And we were kind of in there just like taking it all in. And I thrive in chaos. That's my life. Film sets are crazy. You know, I just got back from Austria shooting a movie where there were seven languages on set. Oh, wow. It was, yeah, it was crazy. And I loved every minute of it. But like Jess said, you just have to, you know, be aware that these guys are really paying attention. So you can't just ignore them. Right. You know, communication is such a theme here. And I feel like sometimes when people meet someone with special needs, and they have some sort of a a guttural reaction that isn't helpful or communicative, it might reflect back more on them, because we all just want to be understood. And so when you are faced with someone that you feel like immediately doesn't understand you, some people aren't willing to power through how it made them feel. Mm -hmm. I mean, Shane, you were in a place with seven languages, there were times that you were not going to be able to communicate with people. And we're all going to go through that. So our patience and our gestures and our smiles go so far. Mm -hmm. Patience goes a long way. You know, and that's something I've had to learn. It's not just like my my godson is a little person. And um, that's something very early on. I learned like just being out in public with him. I have to be patient with people that maybe aren't used to seeing little people. And Mm -hmm. they have a gut, a knee jerk gut reaction that sometimes is extremely rude. And I have to be patient with them, too. You know, because if you're going to educate people on things, you can't attack them. You know, there's a there's a way. And here's what you're talking about, like communication. You can't have this like, well, that's rude. This is a thing. There's got to be a way to communicate things and be like, oh, hey, you know, he's got feelings, too. You know, there's there's more constructive ways to educate people about the differences that we all have between each other. Right. What a lovely note, too. Just before we part ways, can you talk a little more about any other artists that have been involved with your project? Sure. The first week we had uh, Illuminate Atlanta, which is a nonprofit organization that uh, works with individuals and teaches them about photography. 
and they were fantastic. And it led into our second week on illusion so perfectly because they talked about like a worm's eye view versus a bird's eye view. And mm-hmm. they help the student, they bring cameras, they, they let the students take pictures and, and then they give them all the images and let them print them. I mean, it was so fantastic. Um, so those are the, right now, these are the two kind of groups that we've worked with professionals. Our following two weeks, we kind of do on our own and we create, we're doing one on psychology and we're going to be talking about personality tests and playing around with tarot card, making their own tarot cards and thinking about that. And then we were, we're still kind of playing around with our last one, but it's going to be based on conspiracy theories. And um, so we kind of look at these really interesting topics, but that aren't very childlike, but they're very, you know, interesting and intriguing to all individuals. And we look at how we can bring in some kind of artistic expression of that topic, which is cool. That's wonderful. Some of us might know someone who is neurodiverse and might really benefit from a program like this. Do you have any way for people to get involved if they don't think they can afford something like this. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the main thing is just to reach out. You can email me at jesssibley at mindsinmotionot.com and or look at my website um, and just reach out and find out more about what our programs are and what we're offering. And if you need additional support with funding, we can help with financial aid or scholarships. Um helping you find agencies or even dipping into our own financial aid pocket. So we got all sorts of support that we can use. That's just wonderful. And Shane, a final question for you. What are you working on right now? Yeah, I'm, I'm going into this uh, show I do called Click Sport on Twitch with Dan Fogler. And we're getting ready for the second season of that. So What is it? I'm- it's a crazy like online gaming championship and Dan Fogler. I don't know if you're familiar with this actor. He's a, he's a comedy guy, but he's really, really funny. And he, he wanted me to create this character where he was like con, you know, from, from Star Trek. Sure. And he's kind of this egoistic uh, Lord of the universe that runs this huge gaming tournament. And if, you know, we're doing all this fun stuff where the gamers on Twitch have like a green screen background so he can yank them up and put them in the game. What happened was Amazon contacted us about trying to do a uh, streaming show that had production value because none of them do. You know, it's just people sitting Mm. in front of their computer. So we built these crazy Power Rangers meets Ziggy Stardust costumes for all the characters. And it's a lot of fun. That's just wonderful. Well, it's been a pleasure to talk to you both and learn more about this. And I hope other people end up benefiting from it as well. Yeah. Well, here, I just wanted to read this note that one of the students gave me. And this shows you like about an hour before she wrote this, you know, we had to stop her from eating cardboard. And she was, you know, you wouldn't think she might have been paying attention at this time while we were working on this thing. But she gives me this note and it says, kindred souls that come together have endless possibilities to make memories with lasting, powerful lessons to teach. Hope our paths cross again. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So enough said, right? Amazing. Oh, my gosh. I hope to be that eloquent one day. Me too. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know from outside appearance, you might not think that they were capable of this sort of thing, but they're, they're overflowing with it, actually. It's, it's, yeah. it's amazing. Occupational therapist Jess Sibley of the clinic Mind in Motion and artist Shane Morton of Silver Scream FX Lab. More information about their summer arts program can be found on our website wabe.org slash city lights. Now, it seems we're hearing more news about organizational budgets lately. Many arts organizations are evaluating where they spend their money. To that point, the Georgia Council for the Arts just announced that they'd provide more than $2 million in funding to arts organizations throughout our state. The Council for the Arts is a division of the Georgia Department of Economic Development. 
For the fiscal year of 2022, more than 200 organizations have been awarded grants to help with operational support, arts education, and new art projects. One grant recipient, Aurora Theater in Lawrenceville, says the money will help with their space expansion, implementing additional safety protocols, and investing in their creative team. The Georgia Council for the Arts uses peer review panels to judge and review applications, and they follow standards set by the National Endowment for the Arts. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Monday at 11 a.m., the legendary progressive rock band King Crimson is coming to town, and I'll talk with lead singer Jacko Jackson. Our theme music is the first time written and performed by Joe Granston with his jazz band, courtesy of Hot Shoe Records. City Lights senior producer is Kim Troves. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. Special thanks to Kevin Rinker. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. I'd love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. Archived interviews and shows are on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Wishing you a safe and good weekend, and thanks for listening to WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.